This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alice Garner, the host of the channel today, and we'll be talking to Sheila McCrean and Jennifer Fugate about their new book, Movement Matters, How Embodied Cognition Informs Teaching and Learning, which was published by MIT Press this year, 2022. Um, Before I welcome you, I just want to talk a little bit about why I I chose this book. Um, It's the title that grabbed me, and uh, I had worked as a language teacher in secondary school for some years, so I know how important the body is uh, in coming to grips literally with a language, using gesture, active listening, dancing, singing, handwriting, thinking about the position of the tongue and the teeth, how facial expressions can differ across cultures. There's so much body in that process of learning. But I also learned from my teaching experience how difficult it is to do well to set things up properly for that kind of embodied learning, to work with the constraints of a school building, of other people nearby, of uh, the classroom on the other side of the door, but also how little time teachers have to plan these kinds of lessons properly and also um, to stay on top of the research. Mm. So that's what drew me to this book. I was really curious to look at the different sort of the thinking behind uh, embodied learning and the possible applications. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear our, our guests talk today about, about uh, this new book and to, to think about how teachers and students in all kinds of educational settings might be able to benefit from, from this really quite rich research that's been going on. So on that note, Sheila and Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, I thought perhaps we could begin, Sheila, if we start with you, um, to tell us a bit about yourself and and how you came to this project. Well, it was very circuitous, to be honest. Um, I started out as a teacher um, and I felt inadequate. Uh, I went back to graduate school and got a reading specialist certification, much like you, Alice. Um, And then I kind of got hooked on questioning, you know, why kids were having so much trouble learning. Um, Of course, I added special education, and then I became a school psychologist. I completed two PhDs, one in psychological studies and education and one in school psychology. And I wrote a cross-discipline dissertation um, on um, uh, reading comprehension with uh, culturally linguistically diverse students. 
Um, we also did a big project during my graduate school on developing an alternative IQ test because we were challenging the cultural biasness of the IQ test. Well, needless to say, um, I am currently a cognitive psychologist. Uh, I teach in a uh, teacher education program. I direct the special education program. Um, my area of interest in, in terms of research is embodied cognition and embodied learning. Um, and also I'm, I write about critical feminist theory, uh, you know, the political aspects of it. Um, but how we got here, um, I've been teaching learning theory for 20, over 20 years. Um, and I was very frustrated with it after getting out of graduate school, teaching a very traditional models of learning theory and knowing, having been a teacher, having been in the classroom, having worked with kids that don't learn in a traditional way, um, how we needed to kind of look at the student and find out what works for the student. And I talked to my students about being detectives and trying to find out what's the best approach for a particular student. And it gnawed away with me about uh, how learning theory continued, continued to um, mimic sort of this, you know, Cartesian legacy of mind-body separation. You know, I, uh, you know, Jennifer and I talked about this a lot, um, that the teacher continues to be a talking head. The kids still sit in rows and columns. The kids are still measured on how much facts and information they have in their head. Um, the body and emotions are left out of the whole learning event. I mean, good teachers certainly um, good teachers know intuitively that kids learn best with hands-on and movement. Uh, but that, you know, that has not really been explored to the point of empirical data. We know as far back as sort of Montessori uh, and her, um, her approach to hands-on and then all the way up through Piaget and Vygotsky uh, talking about sort of, uh, you know, the, you know, hands-on kind of thing. But I think at that time, basically, it was theoretical and intuitive. Um, certainly, Vygotsky talked about the social component, but nobody really separated, uh, you know, the, the, no, nobody really pointed out this continued separation of mind and body. Well, anyway, I happened to be speaking to a colleague of mine who was in the psychology department and told me about Jennifer and I think I knocked on her door and we started talking and one thing led to the other. And, uh, you know, it was just really uh, kismet almost that we were both very excited. I had written about the technocratic approach to learning theory back in 2002 and critiqued the Cartesian model and suggested that, you know, this needs to be uh, reexamined. Uh, but it, and, and we know that, you know, this whole critique uh, from uh, Clark and Chalmers came out in the 1990s. Uh, but now we actually have neuroscience. And that's kind of was the impetus of the of the book and, and, you know, the way that we kind of pitched it to MIT that, you know, we now have neuroscience evidence and we want to find out who's out there doing applied uh you know, applied embodied cognition uh, for the content areas. And our job then uh, was to set forth and curate uh, the best applied approaches. This is the first book of its kind to actually translate um, sort of the embodied cognition uh, 
for the public. So we're very excited. I think, Jennifer, you want to jump in there? <laughs> sure, I would love to. Thank you so much, Sheila and Alice, um, for being here with us today. I just um, always have been in awe of cognition. So I'm a cognitive psychology by training. I'm actually a comparative cognitive psychologist. So my training is in um, animal cognition, and I focus primarily on uh, working with great apes and rhesus macaques and how they conceptualize their world according to social constructs. I then um, had always, though, had this kind of penchant for cognition and what, how the brain has evolved over time and how that's represented evolutionarily. And I had the great pleasure of having um, Larry Barcelo as a professor during my graduate career, who, if you don't know, is one of the key founders of Embodied Cognition. And as a TA for his course, he just kind of blew my mind with this idea that embodied cognition really flips the traditional notion of thinking on its head. And since then, I've always been intrigued by the representation of information across different species, across an individual's lifespan. I will be honest and kind of I put a hiatus on that um, interest for a while and um for a very long time, I worked in the field of emotion. My postdoc is in emotion perception and regulation. And um, I have pretty much built my career the last 15 years on that work. And then, as Sheila mentioned, it was really kismet. For uh, She knocked on my door one day and said, hey, I heard that you are doing some interesting psychology research. And we began to chat, at which point um, she started telling me about these different phenomenons in teaching and this idea of active teaching. And I said, well, we have a name for that in psychology, and we call it embodied cognition. And it was as if this light came on in uh, her face and just said, well, we were talking about the same thing. We just didn't know we were talking about it. Hence, <laughs> a collaboration was born. So this so, is the per- perfect interdisciplinary uh, moment, isn't it? <laughs> when <laughs> you know you see something new by by kind of taking a different, um, yeah, speaking to someone who's working in another field. It kind of yeah, keep, keep going. Fabulous, though. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I think once I met Sheila. Um, she gave me the confidence to say, hey, this is something that we can actually do. And I, and I thought, well, much like um, young, younger researchers, when we began our co- collaboration, I, I doubted our ability to, to <laughs> really do justice to this literature and, and take it in an applied direction. But Sheila has been wonderful in um, pursuing that journey with me and guiding me through the process. Um, and, you know, I think as she mentioned this is really revolutionary work because we have a, a large history of embodied cognitive research from the last 35 or 40 years. But what has been missing up until this point and um, what we share in this book is that what are the implications? So we know how the brain now works. We have a better model of the, the brain and how um, it has an embodied perspective. But what does this mean for how we learn? and subsequently for how people um, teach in the classroom. And so this collaboration is really born from that interest in taking the literature and saying, how can we translate it into the next step, into applicable principles for teachers and educators, and really transform the way in which people think about learning. 
That's a, a wonderful story in itself and I would love to ask you more about those those um, threads of connection but maybe we could, um, if you could talk a little bit about what you call in the book translational science research which is I guess where you're headed, Jennifer. Um, and Sheila, perhaps you could explain what that is and, and you know, a little more on how that, that shaped your approach to the book. Uh, do you want me to start, Jen? I Sure, go ahead. Uh, so um, I had been reading uh, about the NIH model of uh, translational science research, and it was basically biomedical. And their model was that it was lab bench to the bedside. In other words, the, it was a critique of medical research, a, a way of addressing the critique of medical research that takes years and years and years to get to the public, get to the patient, get to the bedside. And I guess one of the one of the big uh, you know results of this translational science research uh, was the development of the COVID vaccine. You know that turned around in five months. You know five months to a year that we were able to get the actual you know lab bench research, hard biomedical research out to the public, which was really incredible. The idea of the translational science research model was really intriguing to us because we were trying to figure out how could we package uh, or kind of disseminate or kind of translate, you know, these new ideas, you know, and get them out to educators quickly. And so we started to think more and more about it. And we really adapted the model um, and Jennifer will talk about it more, but we adapted that model to translate the latest empirical neuroscience, you know, um, research uh, that these scholars have conducted and make applications for the classroom. So what we did was we contacted the top, top, top people in the field of embodied cognition who are doing content uh, content-based approaches. So somebody would be doing math, somebody would be doing handwriting, somebody would be doing reading, but they were in silos and they really didn't have any cross-fertilization. So this book is like so exciting for us because it is an, you know, this gathering uh, or, you know, um, a group of content-specific scholars in body cognition who are doing research to try to make applications for the classroom. So we asked them to take their empirical research and make applications for the classroom. So it's very exciting that we could get all these disparate content, you know, across disciplines uh, to be in one volume. Because usually, you know, books are like for math or for science or for STEM or kind of that thing. But this one really crosses all content areas and we're really happy about it. So um, Jennifer and I wrote an article, uh, I think in 2020, but we had started talking about this notion of adapting a translational learning sciences research model. And we really kind of went to town on it. And Jennifer can talk more about the actual specifics of the principles. Yes, thank you, Sheila. That's a great introduction. Um, so as Sheila said, this idea of translational science is really popular in the medical field, but we don't really see it a lot in the social sciences. And so we really set out to try to find a way to foster interdisciplinary connections 
and a way to kind of expedite the pipeline between research and practice. And so our model is actually fairly general and we feel it could be adapted for many different um, social sciences, but we've kind of um, put our model to the test with embodied cognition. So in terms of our model, we kind of have four different key um, features, if you will, that if you're interested, I'd be happy to share. Please do, yes. And I, I'm thinking as you're speaking, you know, given the, the range of um, research areas that you cover, what a, a challenging editing job it must be, actually, because you, you have to become familiar enough with all of these areas yes. to be able to make editing decisions. So I did think about that. Anyway, go on, Jennifer. I would like to hear those. Right. Sure, those sure. Yes. Um, So we really try to promote the multidirectional and multidisciplinary integration of basic embodied research. And as part of that, we really are trying to elucidate and kind of debunk some of the current trends in teaching and learning. Uh, Sheila will talk more about the current structure of our education system. Um, But part of that goes with this perpetuation of um, neuromyths and these beliefs and how the brain works that are not actually validated by science. So our model also tries to, and I think we've done a fairly good job at the second point, compiling the embodied research and using it to inform pedagogical approaches and ultimately to um, derive teaching principles that are accessible to the educator and things that he or she can do in the classroom. Part of our model also seeks to develop and disseminate resources to help individuals at all levels of expertise, not just understand um, how to implement these techniques in their classroom, but really to understand the science behind it, because we do know that teachers who are invested and understand why techniques are working in the classroom are more likely to commit to them and also to um, see their students through these activities, um, which result in better learning. And then finally, our model focuses on the creation of appropriate embodied curriculum and the development of taxonomies. Hopefully, um, we'll be able to track outcomes in the future. This is really kind of this last step is really in its infancy right now. But this is something that Sheila and I are hoping to um, develop over the next year. So, you know, you've, you've partially answered this, I suppose, but um, I was interested in thinking about who your imagined audience was. Um, you've touched on it. Perhaps you could elaborate a little on that. Um, I, oh, go ahead. I, I, <laughs> it's fine. Um, I think that what we were trying to, um, you know, tap into was the people that are teaching learning theory the practitioners, the cognitive scientists, the educators, curriculum developers, technology developers, classroom environmental designers. Um, So we thought that this would be something that could be used in multiple ways. We know that the specific content teacher is going to look up their one content area, but the principles, like, like Jennifer was saying, we found, and, and you pointed out, Alice, very astutely that this was really a tough uh, challenge, but we found that there was, you know, linkages across all of the, all of the uh, content areas and disciplines. They were body-based, they were sensory motor uh, integrations, they were really, um, you know, getting the kids and students all the way up through post-secondary 
uh, up and moving and trying to uh, understand how that really benefits the learning event and then how the teacher has to be more mindful of uh, doing this. And uh, well, we'll get more into what the teacher actually does, but really I think it's, it's informative across the, across the um, content areas. Actually one of the professors at MIT is adopting the book for the fall. Um, I think anybody interested in pedagogy or learning theory or any of that is going to really benefit from it. And we also have a lot of resources in there for, uh, for the reader. It is an interesting moment, isn't it, where learning design is being talked about uh, so much and mainly in the, the online context. Um, so, I mean, that's something we might come back to later. But yes. I think people are, are, are kind of talking about it, but where the practice has really changed uh, fundamentally or not is is another question, isn't it? Um, so let's let's go a little further into the theories of embodied cognition that you uh, explore in the book. Um, I was interested to read uh, the words enfleshment of thought, which was one way of, of putting it. But I wonder if you could talk about how what are also called E, the letter E, cognition theories differ from other more dualist approaches to the mind-body relationship. Right. So, uh, Jennifer, should I start here then uh, with the foundational stuff? Okay. So uh, we can look back as far as, um, you know, the rationalist movement sort of even before that, we can look back to sort of Aristotle who talked about, you know, the mind being the spiritual and the body being, you know, so the sort of the vessel that carries around the the mind. Um, And he said that, you know, sort of the the mind was hierarchical over the body. So that was like ancient times. And then we come forward to sort of the Descartes, who was like the, you know, one of the first modern rationalists um, who really talked about, and, and his assumptions were certainly derived from Aristotle's and really carried forward this dichotomous nature of the mind-body separation. Um, and his his theories of mind-body separation really, you know, informed, you know, our modern theory of knowledge acquisition and and knowing and and learning. And um, he uh, talked about um, interesting things that he talked about. Uh, for instance, Descartes talked about uh, that the you know the mind had to be sort of cleared away foundationally. Uh, like an architect would clear away a, a space to build a building and put all sand there and clear away of all, you know, anything rubbish or anything there. So Descartes' notion was that he, uh, his epistemological notion was that he needed to lay a foundation for the sort of universal truths that were going to be uh, built in this sort of mind or house, it, you know, and he likened it to an architect building a house and demolishing the area. And these notions about clearing foundation uh, really informed uh, theory of mind uh, for, you know, forever. And um, now uh, he insisted that uh, the mind had to be cleared of any biological, human, social influences that might contaminate or taint true knowledge or reason. Um, This really informed Western epistemology, uh, philosophy, and the sciences. And so... 
these grand totalizing master narratives uh, really uh, in Western thought really informed how um, how we uh, developed psychology and educational theories. Um, and certainly you can go to the narrative of behaviorism uh, where John Locke talked about the tabula rasa, this blank slate. It's, you know, all the way, you know, it comes forward here. Um, and that the role of the teacher was to fill the empty heads of the students uh, with pre-established bodies of knowledge. So, you know, the notion of learning was really the teacher as the transfuser and the students as a recipient. And this was really, or the banking, you know, Ferrari talks about the banking uh, or deposited education or, you know, filling the empty uh, uh, body, you know, the mind, uh, the brain in the vat, as it were. But these disembodied or dis- they became disembodied uh, models of, of learning. And, um, it ultimately uh, informed uh, our, our current um, learning theory, even up to the point where we talk about constructivism. Um, it's still rooted in this epistemological foundation. And um, it really has, uh, you know, for instance, Matthew critiqued, uh, Matthews in 1992 critiqued constructivism as the old empiricist wolf in the contemporary sheep's clothing. Uh, you know, and Glass- von Glasserfeld, uh, the father of radical constructivism, uh, talked about, um, you know, constructivism is, you know, new wine in old wine bottles. So uh, we really haven't evolved until this paradigm shift that we're talking about that's taking place in uh, cognitive theory, cognitive learning theory in terms of an embodied model. Uh, Jennifer, do you want to pick it up from there? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, as Sheila has said, their traditional models of cognition really emphasize this Cartesian dualism, the separation of the mind, which was based for perception, and then the body, which was based for action. And the body was only thought to play a role in translating the action to the environment. So the brain was seen as representing and processing computations of stored information. This information was usually amodal in the brain, abstracted, symbolic. Whereas an embodied model of thinking really says that thinking is inseparable from the body and the environment. Um, And I think that this is really in tune with the modern cognitive science view of how the brain works. So we used to think about the brain as storing representations, manipulating representations of information, that it was oftentimes reactive. But the modern cognitive science says the brain is actually predictive and actively involving interpreting sensory, bodily, and and movement information. Of course, this happens within a context in which the information is given and also relies on the uh, perceiver's conceptual knowledge that is what they know to interpret this kind of sensory information. So what I like to say is that um, I think cognition is deeply dependent, not just on the body and the experiences of, of one's body and sensory systems, but that they're really the body and sensory systems and those that are specific to an individual organism, whether that be human or otherwise, is going to dictate the perceptions that are available for action and action for perception. So we can think about embodied cognition as bodily action really constituting experience. 
And I think that this has um, huge ramifications, as Sheila said, um, for teaching with the most obvious one that I think the listeners are probably familiar with as active learning. Active learning is a key component of embodied cognition. Um, Embodied cognition, I would say, takes it a step further in that we really value um, the input from the sensory and motor experiences and that there's not this translation then to stored information in, in the brain, but the brain itself is actually representing the initial sensory and motor um, input. So that when you are now thinking about an idea, it's, it is as if you're re-experiencing it and we call that phenomenon simulation. Um, and we think that this is the basis of perhaps all concepts. Um, some views of radical cognition suggest that there are no mental representations. Everything is grounded within the perceptual and motor systems. Other theories suggest that there may be abstract um, conceptualization happening either at a later time or that there's a separate system that's more for shallow processing of linguistic information and then a more deeply rooted embodied pathway. So different theories kind of emphasize how far you can take the embodied cognition picture. But I think the general idea is that we learn through our body and our senses, they're represented directly in our brain, and that an organism's sensory systems are going to dictate the experience. So I always like to throw in the example here of, um, if anyone's seen or read about My Octopus Teacher, it's this great film that came out. And we know that the octopus has an incredible intelligence system, yet it doesn't have a centralized brain. So how does it house all of this cognition? It turns out it houses it through its tentacles. And so I think that gives us a great example of how we can learn through our body without necessarily the representation of an internal cognitive processing system or brain. Thank you. I'm just uh, really amazed at what it requires to bring all of this together also because our own models of understanding in some ways, you know, prevent us sometimes from coming to grips with, uh, you know, a paradigm shift such as the one you're you're explaining. So I'm sort of conscious of the cognitive work that's involved even in finding the language to talk about yes, these yes. things. Um, so maybe uh, we could think a little bit more about what this looks like in educational settings. How, uh, and, and perhaps this is an opportunity also to go into uh, some of the sections in the book, um, but what, do, what are the implications for education in the kind of, uh, in the classroom or in other settings? Absolutely. Uh, Sheila, do you want to start? Yeah, um, I, uh, I, did you want to discuss the 4E cognition before we do that so that it... Uh... Yeah, so this idea of 4E cognition, um, and by 4Es we mean enacted, um, we also mean embedded and extended as well as embodied. And what some of those terms, although they, they kind of seem like a, a mouthful, really means is that Cognition doesn't just begin and end within the body or, or within the brain. It's really an extension of our environment. And so how our environment plays into how our sensory systems uh, per, process information is really important. In fact, um, the great psychologist and philosopher Andy Clark has said that um, 
cognition is really extended. And by some of the devices and the robotics that we have today, our cognition doesn't stop within our brain or within our body. It's extended to the different devices that we have. That includes our smartphone. We know, in fact, from robotics that robots learn better when they're actually able to experience and navigate their own environment. And this idea then is that cognition isn't just limited to ourselves. It's really extended into the world. Um, And I think right along with that goes this idea of um, embedded cognition, which is that thinking is really situated doing. And so our thinking, however that be represented, is embedded within the environment and what the affordances of the environment. And so I think this idea of 4E cognition um, really takes the principles of embodied cognition and uses the student's experience in the case of learning as their source knowledge, rather than the teacher just transmitting content, it really plays, shows that there's a a necessary component for students' active learning and within the environment and as an extension of their environment. Yeah, if I can just add to that. um, So the notion of perception is so important and uh, all the way back to Merleau-Ponty, you know, this notion of enfleshment of thought that, you know, we, we, think and learn with our body and this, you know, the knowledge comes from being in the world, embedded in the world, like Jennifer said. Um, And he talked about this extended sort of notion of cognition or perception. And he used the, the example, the metaphor of the blind man and the stick. And his question was, you know, the blind man, you know, with the cane, where does the perception, where does the mind end? Does it end with the hand? Does it end with the handle of the cane? Does it end with the tip of the cane? How is this person embedded in the in the environment? And how is this extending his cognition of the environment? And I think the notion of situated learning, distributed learning that we talk about in cognition is really going to explode because the notion of embodiment really pulls in all of that information. And that's what we talk about designing the classroom, uh, you know, the technology that can happen with VR and everything else that's coming down the pike. Um, uh, we're really excited about it. So I just wanted to point that out that uh, this notion of the extension of the mind, you know, even as Jennifer talks about into our phone, we never memorized phone numbers anymore. Uh, we offload our cognition into our phone or our computer. Um, you know, it's interesting. My husband had asked me somebody's phone number and I said, I have no idea. <laughs> Look on my phone. <laughs> so. I was thinking as you were speaking about the example of, of learning to drive and the way that our body or our, our, um, yeah. our perception extends to you know, in order to be able to park, it's like you have to imagine yourself as uh, taking up more space and a different shape. Um, and there's, I think there's been some very interesting research done around in that sort of auto mobilities uh, field around bodies and cars and um, <laughs> cognition. So, yeah, it just reminded me. Um Can I just tell you something about what Andy Clark writes about the cab drivers in London? They're very different from the New York cab drivers. New York cab drivers kind of just go where the GPS says. 
But how you became a cab driver in London in the black cabs in the old days, they had to memorize all the uh, maps and all the places and take the, the tests. And they measured the size of the ta- taxi cab driver's brains uh, that they were able to kind of internalize these maps in parts of their brain. And uh, it was fascinating that, you know, like you said, this automobile becomes an extended part of their cognition, that it gets them around London and uh, I just thought that was an interesting comment about, you know, you're talking about being in an automobile. It's kind of this extension of how, you know, we we are in the world, in other words, mm-hmm. right? And that also brings to mind that whole Jesuit uh, training of the cathedral of memory of yeah. uh, the mind being a sort of architecture in which you would place things in order to be able to remember them so that we we are using a kind of concept of space and our body in space yeah but it sits with you know i mean it's fascinating isn't it we could go in all sorts of <laughs> um, let's get things, i'm sorry one of the things yeah. i think is so interesting is that people who have are either born with a bodily deficit or you know have subject to some kind of injury in which their body is actually transformed we know that that actually affects their cognition. And so people who are disabled in some way um, actually experience the world very differently. And that's a result of having a different set of mobility. And so one of the great things that um, this book does is have a chapter on inclusion and what embodied cognition might look like um, in people that are differently abled, as well as adapting some of these paradigms yeah. and body paradigms for a special education population. Yes, and indeed uh, that um, those of us who have not had those experiences can learn from those as, as ways of kind of thinking about um, our interactions with our environments and, and using our senses in different ways. And, yeah, there's a lot of possibilities there, aren't there? Um, maybe we can move on to... Uh, the way the book is structured, um, because you cover quite a few different areas, um, and if you could give listeners a sense of how you've done that, that would be fantastic. Actually, it came in a different way to us because we had it organized in uh, in a different, uh, you know, um, kind of table of contents, and we had really great help from MIT Press that sort of said you know what would be good if you put these in like categories and so Jennifer and I kind of worked together to try to group these different you know um, content areas in in a different way right Jen wouldn't you say yeah correct yep so uh, one of the first ones that we talked about we've already talked about the philosophical and theoretical foundations of the book so we have we, uh, Jennifer and I both wrote a chapter on, you know, the significance for education, but then we have a great philosopher from Down Under, um, Daniel Hudo, uh, who wrote about, and, and with uh, Dora Abramson from Berkeley, uh, who wrote about the philosophical sort of foundations of, of embodied cognition, um, and talking about this sort of uh, uh, extended, extended mind model. Um, so, the next section was on reading and language. And um, I found that fascinating because I used to teach reading specialists for years. And uh, that kind of mimics just exactly what we were talking about. Um, you know, in the 50s and 60s, we were very behavioristic in teaching reading. 
Um, we would teach in a very hierarchical way. Alice, you probably know this. We would teach phonics first, then blends, then, you know, uh, you know, letters, then blends and, you know, the, the phonics rules and they would learn words and then, you know, phrases and stuff. And many times they didn't even get their hands on a real book until third grade. Um, and we know that, um, you know, the big uh, shift in reading instruction in the late 70s and early 80s was to kind of reject that bottom-up methodology uh, for a more holistic approach. And that caused all kinds of uh, craziness because while we know that kids who have been read to from an early age sort of develop an internalized schema for language, uh, for the story grammar, for uh, standard English or whatever language they speak, uh, it becomes, you know, they become socialized in it. And then when they get to school, many times they don't need really explicit, uh, you know, uh, training in how to read because many kids can sort of figure it out um, when they get to school if they've been read to. Kids that come to school who haven't been read to, who come from uh, families that I worked with in Philadelphia that lacked literacy themselves, um, really had a tough time learning to read. And the model that was out there was to teach them this very bottom-up, skills-driven um, way of uh, instructing reading. And it still continues to this day when we know that the holistic approach works. Um, but the holistic approach, whole language kind of got rejected in the, I guess, 90s, late 80s and 90s because they were saying there's no skills developed. So... Uh, now we sort of have this interactive kind of model where we're trying to teach skills within authentic text so that they get the story, they understand what reading comprehension is, etc. But an embodied approach, an embodied approach kind of takes the best of all worlds. Uh, Arthur Glenberg came up with a model called Moved by Reading. And uh, how he teaches how he suggests that we teach reading, especially with early, early, uh, edu- you know, education is that, uh, he uses like little characters and models, actually toy little models, uh, that the kids, uh, read the story or the t- teacher reads the story. And then the children recreate the story based on these moving these characters around, uh, to really be able to retell the story. It really helps to internalize the notion of narrative uh, and it really gets the kids involved in understanding that the author is just telling us a story and our job is to try to interpret what that story is. Uh, he then found very successful results with the kids being able to internalize the notion of reading comprehension as opposed to sort of this bottom-up model. We know that a very word uh, word recognition kind of basic model uh, you know, doesn't work. Um, that we really need to have a holistic approach that the kids understand what the reading event is, is that it's just kind of interpreting what the author wants us to know. Um, And then he kind of translated that to um, a a video uh, model um, where the kids actually take that as they get older um, or more comfortable with it, um, and they actually move the characters on the screen. Um, So we found that he found that that was a really successful way of uh, helping uh, to improve reading instruction through this embodied notion uh, of learning. 
And the great thing is that even translates into imagining the motion. So once children physically go through the motion, they're asked to imagine the motion. So they're making this transition from the physical to the mental, if you will. And just being able to imagine or simulate that activity results in improved performance from these disembodied approaches that we're more familiar with. And I think if I can just elaborate on one more point, I think it's great because this then becomes the foundation for body movements for hierarchical and more abstract concepts as well. So one of the things that uh, Glenberg and other researchers have said is that once a child understands opposing forces um, and they can do that, you know, through movement, you can use that to help understand different sides of an argument. Mm. And so there's this translation then to something much more abstract. And so you're, you know, again, you're physically grounding the movement to show opposition and it can translate then into opposition of thought or argument as well. And so in um, when you're thinking about the the teaching of language, there are so many elements, aren't there? So yeah. um, if we're thinking about teaching of, you know, foreign languages or languages other than English or depending on the setting you're in, uh, curious to know what sorts of work has been relevant to that slightly different um, area. So Jennifer has a really good uh, interpretation of the language acquisition part, but we are going to be working with this professor from Hong Kong. She actually is a Latina woman. Um, And we were talking to her and she is kind of investigating embodied learning for a second language acquisition, teaching a second language. And she was telling us that, you know, in Spanish, you know, this, you know, teaching foreign language with one word mapping of concept, one word mapping to a concept, which is a traditional model of teaching another language. I remember learning Latin that way, uh, but it's dead language. It doesn't mean. So anyway, she said that for instance, in Spanish, Uh, it doesn't work to do the one word mapping that in Spanish, just the way the person gestures, their posture, their movement, it could have 50 different, different uh, meanings in in the word. Uh, I thought that was really a great example of an embodied sort of notion of how we need to juxtapose how we really teach foreign language rather than you know, just like by the book and sort of rehearsal uh, uh, of phrases and stuff, but to really kind of engage the whole body and the environment. Jennifer, you want to? Yeah. So I think why the success of so many programs like Babbel that really help you learn language and context, they're so successful for exactly these reasons. They aren't focused on you know, the kind of hierarchical building blocks of words and s- sentence structure and syntax, but really are immersive in that they teach you key phrases and they teach you within the context of what's useful. And then later through that actual embodied experience, people can derive principles in terms of rules and syntax and all of that, but it really flips this idea of learning from following rules and then applying them to learning through application Mm -hmm. and then deriving the rules. Nathan calls it formulisms first. There's this push in um, learning so that you learn the formulas, and this could be in language or mathematics or or any other domain, domain. And if there's time, then you might apply them. 
And embodied cognition says, wait a minute, let's learn, let's let the rules be derived from the experience itself. And so I think that's why, just to go back to your point about second language learning, it's so important when you learn it in an immersive context. And as Sheila said, gesturing is incredibly important. We know that how people gesture affects their thought. We know that there's difference in thinking between right-handers and left-handers. And that the representation of a bodily activity, including gesture within the brain, is, is very different for differently abled individuals. And so this idea of this gross motor experience is really important. Um, and we know that teachers who gesture more tend to have students who are more engaged. We also know that um, students who gesture when they're reasoning through complex activities, mm-hmm. and this could be again in math or in science, they're more likely to have novel insights into problem solving and have improved performance as well. I, I recall there was an interesting chapter that explored that um, research into gesture and um, it touched on teachers' attitudes towards gesture as well mm-hmm. and how that could shape both what happened and the, the sort of impact of, of gesture. And I was sort of curious about these different levels of um, of examination of, of uh, embodied cognition. Yeah, absolutely. So I just say a few more things about that. And Sheila, if you want to jump in, but this idea of gestures is so incredibly important. And I think goes back to my initial point about educating the teacher as well, because once teachers understand embodied cognition and why gesturing is important, they're more invested and will naturally gesture more in the classroom. But I think what a student or what teachers gesturing does is not only focus the students into uh, um, attention, but it also emphasizes key points in thinking. So we know that some of the origins of language theory suggest that gesture was the beginnings of spoken language. Mm-hmm. And we know that people innately move when they move their mouth, they move their hands as well. And Sometimes um, the research shows that when there's an inconsistency in between what someone is saying and what they're gesturing, that's actually a key pivotal time to change learning. So if you notice that a student, let's say, is is saying one thing, but their hands are doing something else, that actually suggests that there's a fundamental disconnect in their learning at that point. So teachers can capitalize on that by being cognizant of it and say, hey, I think that there's a disconnect here. Maybe we need to step back and practice this again or, or go over this lesson again. That's fascinating because so often as teachers, um, the challenge is to to notice or recognise those moments, isn't it, you know, and, and to be able to determine whether the students are grasping something, if there's a, a physical way that mm-hmm. that can and that we can identify and actually learn how to do that better. That's That's got quite exciting um, possibilities. And the neuroscience supports it, you know, this the whole thing in, in the book, Aziz writes about uh, the mirror neurons and how imitation and simulation really uh, light up the brain and that this really helps us, you know, move the learning event forward. And, you know, the, the big critique about learning online, uh, that the teachers aren't able to really communicate with the kids. Um uh, you know, we've just really moved to that model of teaching online since COVID, and we were all novices. We didn't even know how to use Zoom, most of us. 
But the reality is, is that you can still gesture online. Um, you know, there are still emotional, you know, changes in the face and the body when we are teaching online. We can still kind of look at our students and see if there's any responses in their faces. We know many times when we've taught and you can tell when the students are snoring, you know, with their eyes open. Uh, but I think that if teachers and educators really understood that this gesture and, and you know, the notion of imitation uh, is so much more powerful than what we thought before uh, is, is so powerful. But I think that it's going to evolve. I think now with this notion of VR and Oculus is going to really you know, jettison online learning to a whole different level. Uh, you know, there's, you know, research on special needs kids, for instance, uh, you know, um, students, uh, I mean, the, the research with avatars and um, uh, students with prosthetic limbs and viewing a limb on, on the, in the Oculus or the VR room and actually the movement of the limb that they may not have, uh, you know, maybe having a prosthetic the movement of the limb uh, in sort of this VR, you know, uh, universe uh, actually lights up the same um, parts of the brain that would be if they had the limb in action. Um, and there's a lot more, you know, things that are going to really start to evolve. And we're hoping that embodied cognition is part of the dialogue. Yeah, so- absolutely. I mean, observational learning is so incredibly important. And we know now we have the neural basis and the discovery of the mirror neuron system that actually supports that. Um, so for those of you who aren't familiar with that, the mirror neuron system is basically a system within the brain that will fire in response to somebody else's action. And it's been hypothesized that it really is the basis of imitative learning and even complex social emotional skills like empathy and allows us then to learn not just from others actions but to really um, engage in the connection with them on an emotional level and i think it's really interesting too that um, when we're talking about the social emotional domain autism has actually been characterized as a disease of lack of embodiment Mm -hmm. and we know that uh, one of the common features of autism is difficulties in, in motor movement Um, And I think that embodied cognition really provides for that notion that there's a disconnect in the temporal kind of coordination of motor and conceptual information in individuals who are suffering from autism. So what are the possibilities there? Is it about starting with the body um, in that situation? I mean, where does the research lead you in in thinking about the applications in the case of autism? We actually have a chapter in the book uh, by Tancredi. Uh, They call it SPEED, um, S-P-E-E-D. And they worked with autistic kids and they were teaching them math through a, um, a balance board and they called it the balance number line. And the kids are sitting on this board that rolls back and forth. You know, if you can just think about a a skateboard with one like ball in the center so that it can seesaw back and forth. And in front of the kids, they put a number line, uh, you know, negative numbers on one side and positive numbers on the other. And um, the, 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 the students would rock back and forth in a self-stimulating activity, which is very um, much um, 
you know, what you know, some autistic kids do. And so they would able, they were able to like um, roll back and forth on this balance board uh, to sort of, um, you know, teach them goal oriented mathematics counting. They could count and they would say that the positive numbers are on this right side, the negative numbers are on the left side. Um, and then if they stayed in an askewed way, um, you know, they could talk about, you know, how this is different. Um, they really uh, had a lot of success with uh, this natural enga- engagement of the vestibular, uh, you know, simulation and behavior that these students who lacked sort of sort of this notion of embodiment were able to really apply something that they do naturally with this self-stimulation with this balance board. It's very exciting stuff. I mean, you know, it still needs to be kind of completely worked out, but there are implications for um, working with the uh, students on the, on the spectrum. Yeah, I found that really fascinating, um, the, the idea that the sort of repetitive movements could be used in a, in a, in a productive way rather than having you know teachers saying stop doing that stop <laughs> repeating that you know instead it's well how can that actually help you yeah you know learn that is that's a wonderful um, capitalize prospect, on it yeah it? Mm. i think that's an example of these neuro myths that you know we seek to dispel too i tell the story often of my when my son was in third grade he came home and his teacher had reprimanded him for counting on his fingers. Right. And I said, it couldn't be something further from the truth. We know that, in fact, the brain represents numbers through the body and through fingers. And that one's sense of their own fingers, this idea of um, finger nausea, actually predicts their ability in mathematics and is predictive all the way through college performance. And I said, keep counting on your fingers. <laughs> Count on your fingers, the better. Yeah, there's amazing stuff about the fingers in your book. And I was really, really, um, you, you know, the idea that uh, finger counting is only supposed to be for your first few years of education, rather the research suggests we should keep doing it through our whole life, right? It just might have, might be done in different ways. Absolutely. And we know there are interesting cultural differences too. So cultures that start with their thumb in the primary position, which yeah. you just imagine yourself counting one, two, three, four, five, is very different from cultures that start with the pinky. And in terms of the representation of numbers follows that, that finger order as well within the brain. So there have been studies that show that if your um, perception goes or if your lower numbers are started with your thumb, which is, is typical I think for most Westerners, mm-hmm. and um, you're faster to respond then to things that are on the left side of the keyboard as opposed to the right side of the keyboard, which would represent larger numbers or the five in the case of the fingers. And the reverse is true for other cultures who start counting with their pinkies. So really fascinating. Again, just this wealth of empirical research that, you know, again, what do you do with it and how hopefully our model and our book has made this then accessible to say, hey, something like finger counting is a good thing. (laughs) 
Well, I'll definitely be doing more counting on my fingers, <laughs> um, especially as, you know, same as with not being able to memorise phone numbers anymore, you know, we sort of uh, tend to rely on our calculators on our phones, whereas, you know, it's I'd like to get back to some mental and finger arithmetic. Um, maybe you could talk a little about the table that you've produced at the end of the book and uh, I'm interested to know how this might be used by by readers yeah so I can I can start in on that question so part of the bigger goal I think and this was somewhat self-motivated in that again I was intrigued by all of this literature and we had spent so much time reviewing it and working with the wonderful people who've written the individual chapters right. and I thought well what is the next step let us let's take that translational model that we propose and say what can we actually provide as real world tangible ex, um, applications and principles so what we did was then we went back and we went through each chapter and we said okay what are the key findings here and then is there something more general, an action principle that can be derived from more of the theoretical principles? So that table that you're referring to, Alice, really suggests these action principles and then says, based on this principle, what can teachers do? So if you just allow me a minute for an example, one of the things that we know we're talking about gestures is that gestures often accompany speech. They serve as a way to convey ideas. They predict the quality of one's argument. Again, all of this was derived from the empirical support within the chapters. So we said, okay, what can what advice can we give teachers? Well, we know that teachers can consider how gestures support understanding, reveal learner struggles and under and when they are understanding. And we talked about the disconnect sometimes between gestures and what's spoken. We also said teachers can directly interact with learners' gestures to try to control or manipulate them to emphasize other otherwise overlooked elements. So there's a great example from Abrahamson and his colleagues in the math world where they actually teach math and this idea of quantity size through gesturing. So students will gesture, you know, um, something that's twice as large by moving their hands twice as large as they were initially. Mm -hmm. And then what they find is that a teacher who actually helps scaffold that movement um, actually facilitates then the learners to be able to do that then on their own and they can go ahead and represent that information in a proportional way. Yeah, they actually use the Nintendo Wii. Um, and they use the Wii as well. Yeah. You know, for the proportional, um, you know, uh, ideas with their hands, they were able to, you know, use their hands to show, um, you know, proportion on the screen. Another application with in terms of the um, technology is uh, this really cool thing called Prism. It's a it's a with the Oculus, the students are actually able to teach advanced math, uh, um, you know, uh, trigonometry, you know, calculus, um, geometry, or whatever. Uh, one of the kids was was uh, on, you know on one of the interviews was talking about um, actually being in the um the um the triangle and moving down the slope of the triangle to figure out the the actual slope size uh so i mean this is just going to explode but i'm just hoping that you know curriculum designers textbook you know folks are going to give embodied learning 
you know, a, a fair deal with this because it is representative and certainly we would like to see it in textbooks and, um, you know, adopted for environmental design for classrooms and, and teaching and learning environments as well. So, um, yeah, so we're really excited about the principles that teachers can use the book and just pick up the principles. It's like Jennifer says, low tech, easy to adopt. Um, we have all the different content areas there with a lot of resources at the end from each of the um, contributors that they design their uh, different applications. And it's all free to uh, open access. Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, there is so much great work being done in AR and VR, but, you know, body cognition doesn't have to be expensive and it doesn't have to be um, very technical either. I things as simple manipulatives in the classroom, mm-hmm. we know that, you know, learning through engagement, um, Legos, geotiled, beanbags, all of those things are great, uh, really inexpensive ways to get hands-on learning. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing that's really um, come out and quite interesting um, is this idea that you can use your smartphone and most people have smartphones nowadays. And there's um, a couple of really great um, examples in our book by Vieira and Vieira, as well as um, some of the other researchers that show how you can use your cell phone, your smartphone's internal sensors to learn things like magnetism, acceleration, speed, velocity, all kinds of things. And they're just built within your phone. And, you know, students can walk through the environment with their phone and calculate in real time these different dynamical properties. Yeah. And for teachers, you know, I'm sure your kids, your students use Pokemon Go. Uh, Vieira and Vieira adapted that model in terms of trying to teach uh, gravitational pull, they have a, a, um, uh, an application at the end of the book that uh, teachers can download. Um, but yeah, the hands-on is something that teachers have done forever. But now if teachers are cognizant of how this impacts learning uh, and understand that there's science and you know empirical uh, research behind it, I think they'd be more motivated to incorporate it all the way you know, through, uh, you know, schooling, that it's not just for little kids, not for early childhood, but really that the hands-on is uh, really the way to go. And to, to, to kind of, they talk about flipped classrooms. Well, this is going to really flip classrooms if people really buy into this, and we're hoping that they do. And I think MIT Press believed in it enough to uh, take a risk on it. It was definitely a risk worth taking and um, (laughs) I look forward to talking to people about it and also trying some things out myself, although at the moment I'm only doing online teaching. But as you say, there are possibilities there and um, we need to think about what that might look like in the online space uh, and you know, where, where, where's the room for, for experimentation in that direction that's not just about staring at a screen but how we think about our, our gesture, our expression, and also what we might ask students to do uh, in their own space, wherever they right. happen to be, that kind of allows some sort of embodied learning to be taking place yeah it's um no it's a really extraordinary book there's so much in there we've I think we've covered quite a lot but of course for for listeners uh you need to look at the book to to get a sense of the 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 breadth and depth of of the research that's in there um and it's and its applications so maybe just to finish off um 
could you tell me about what you're doing now and where you're headed with your own research? Well, that's very exciting. That's exactly what one of the principles that Jennifer talked about is this sort of dissemination and educational part of uh, our model. Um, we're working on, hopefully, with you know, in an embodied uh, you know metaphor, with our fingers crossed, to get a grant to do uh, summer institutes for uh, uh, teachers, principals, uh, professional developers. We haven't really talked about the professional trainers that go out to the schools that perpetuate these neuromyths, but we won't go there. Um, but uh, and also to maybe uh, give some fellowships for doctoral students that want to pursue this research. So we're thinking of doing a five-year uh, summer institute. Uh, we're trying to get it funded so that it's not going to be out of pocket for the participants and to have some of our scholars and contributors in the book to uh, come. And Jennifer can talk about this wonderful center at Kansas City University, the Simulation Center. Do you want to talk about that, where we're hopefully housing this institute? <laughs> Sure. So um, I didn't say this in my introduction, and I should. So I met Sheila at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, where she currently resides. And recently, in the last couple of months, I've moved to Kansas City University. And one of the impetuses for that move was this amazing center. It's the Center for Educational Embodied um, Learning. And it is a 54,000 square foot um, simulation center in which the medical students at the university can get hands-on training, both with um, um, interactive mannequins in um, working with health-related questions, as well as with AR and VR. And so it's, a, it's really a one-of-a-kind um, type of center that's really transformed medical, medical training. The great thing is, is that this center opened about four months before COVID. So when COVID hit, Kansas City University was ready to transition online and the learning of their medical students. So um, I think they're they're really cutting edge on that. So as Sheila said, I think that there's this isn't just a project for kindergarten through 12th grade education. These principles can be extended into grad college and graduate education as well. So I'm part of a, a PsyD program, a clinical psychology program, and um, we know, as well as the medical program here, how important it is to have simulated patients and simulated interactions. And whether that be with um, you know, mannequins that are interactive in the way that we have here, or that be in a completely AR, VR world, I think that experience is just um, immeasurable for students as they prepare to become practitioners. Um, so just by um, um, on another example, one of the things that Sheila and I are doing is we've created a website. And in that website, we're going to have a repository of not just the empirical studies that we've reviewed, but also have a searchable database where we can show when these principles, when and where these principles, if they've been translated into classroom vetted examples, but also then what are, where people can access these resources as well. So we hope it's kind of a, a one-stop shop cleaning house <laughs> for embodied cognition and, and for learning resources. That's exciting. Please uh, let me know when that happens, assuming it will, because I can um, share it on, on the blog that goes with this podcast episode. Terrific. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. So um, 
look, thank you so much for your time and thank you for the book and all the best <laughs> for the coming project, which is uh, sounds very promising. Thank, thank you. you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's thank really you. great. And Alice, if any of the listeners would like to get in touch with us, I, you know, they could probably contact us by email and, uh, you know, with any questions or any follow-up. Fantastic. I'll make sure I have the details linked through on the on the blog as well. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank Perfect. you. Thank you, Alice.